Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Cheerful Book Club. Conversations with the writers shaping the way we think about our world. Ed Miliband, Jeff Lloyd, and friends spend time with the people behind today's smartest writing. In association with Vintage, read boldly, think differently. Follow at Vintage Books for more. Hello, in this episode of Cheerful Book Club, we chat to the legend that is Billy Bragg about the three dimensions of freedom, which is his pamphlet on the principles that should underpin the kind of society we want to build. Billy talks about the impact of social media and why we need to rediscover how to hold politicians to account. Cheerful Book Club, talking to the writers, exploring the biggest ideas of our time. Support for Cheerful Book Club comes from Vintage. Read boldly, think differently. Follow at Vintage Books for more. Billy Bragg is here to talk about his new book, The Three Dimensions of Freedom. Billy Billy Bragg is here! In my attic. Is this your attic? This is is my attic. It's not as dusty as my attic, I tell you. I think behind you, on that shelf, there's a a copy of the Billy Bragg biography by Andrew Collins. I mean, I'm supposed to be a sort of relatively silent partner in this interview, but can I just say to the listeners, I've never seen Jeff do so much homework <laughs> as he has for this interview. In in two years of working together, that is how seriously he's taking I'm this taking, interview. I'm taking it seriously. I'm honoured, yeah, Jeff. Yeah, I'm yeah. honoured, mate. And, and it's, it's difficult to keep track because, I mean, you've become a literary factory. It seems just five <laughs> minutes ago you were publishing a book. I mean, you're like Jilly Cooper. It was Skiffle <laughs> five minutes ago, and now it's the, uh, the, the, the three dimensions of freedom um and it's a pamphlet which there's something almost quaint about the word pamphlet in this day well it is they do keep uh, using this phrase and it's not my first ed was the recipient of my first pamphlet and i, I can remember going to see him when he was but a a, a a minion a minion at the treasury uh, along with uh, his mate woody and talking to them about reforming the house of lords as they were the representatives on earth of gordon brown and the the representatives on earth of Tony Blair had said, if you can go and convince the <laughs> Brownites of this, we might get some action. So I thought, well, we're in for a penny and for a pound. And, and this is the secondary mandate idea. Yeah, yeah. The idea for reforming the House of Lords by just distributing all the seats in the upper chamber in direct proportion to the votes cast in the general election. So bit Ed, what board, happened? I failed. No, it's not true. I mean, you know, it's not something you can do overnight. I, I try to engage in politics, even though... I'm not always 100% supportive of the Labour Party over, the, over those years. I've always tried to engage. I think that's the important thing. If you're going to be an artist who writes about uh, the way the world is, you've got to find some way of engaging with it rather than just writing about it. And you were saying before we switched the microphones on that these days you think an, a, a book is a better vehicle for ideas for you at this stage of your life than a song. I think it is, yeah. I think it is. I think, you know, I've got to accept that, I, you know, when I put out a record now, the world doesn't stop and everyone can run over to hear what I'm saying. It's not like it was. Not not least because I'm old and I understand that and I'm totally cool with it. But also music doesn't still have that vanguard role in youth culture where everyone's focused on that. So you can make a relatively big splash. I mean, you think when I was making my first records, there were four weekly news 
newspapers, music newspapers in Britain. So, you know, in that context, you could get an idea out. When I wanted to talk about Englishness, uh, when it wasn't very fashionable, I made an album called England Half English and put the English flag on the cover. So consequently, all the interviews I did were about that subject. That's how I set that agenda. I can't do that anymore. I don't have that. There's no, there's no place in our culture where I can make the kind of landing that would have that big splash with a song. That, but I can with uh, with a book or a pamphlet. It'll get you onto a podcast. I you know some lovely book festivals out there. You get along, and uh, unlike rock festivals, you don't have to carry no gear. <laughs> you know, don't get covered in mud. I like book festivals. So, so why this book now? Then, what was what was? <clears throat> just, we'll, we'll come on to the ideas in it. The sort of three pillars of, of the book. But what was going on with you? How, how long had this been stewing in your well, brain? Well, interestingly, when I when I was coming to see Ed at the Treasury, which must have been, God knows, two thousand and four. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, um, I was writing about accountability in terms of Parliament. You know, an unelected upper house. So I was already focusing on the you know, ideas of accountability as being lacking in our society. But what's happened in the meantime is the election of Donald Trump has brought the issue of accountability and, and, and veracity and honesty right to the centre of our political culture. When you've got a guy who says, I could shoot someone in the face on Fifth Avenue and people would still vote for me. I mean, that. I mean, he's not just talking about I could shoot someone. He's talking about I could shoot someone and be arrested and be tried and be charged and go to prison and people would still vote for me. Yeah. When, you, when you kind of separate democracy from accountability you know you really are pushing at the gates of tyranny so the rise of authoritarianism not only in in the united states of america but elsewhere around europe and obviously you know painting a lie on the side of a big red bus and driving it around the country it's it seems to me i keep you know when, once you identify the lack of accountability is the problem. You see it everywhere. Well, it's a, you, you split it into three. Accountability is the last one. We'll go through them in the order you do them in the book. Liberty, you talk about as uh, distinct from freedom. Mm. Can, you, can you explain that a bit? Yeah, sure. Liberty is the right to say whatever you think, to a freedom of expression, to be able to say what you think when you think it, to say it to whoever you wish to think, right? Now, if that's the only definition of freedom we have, then... There's no better example of freedom than Donald Trump's Twitter feed because he's saying whatever he wants, whenever he wants it, with no comeback. That clearly is not freedom. That's something else. That's license he's using there. What you need in order to be truly free, you need two other dimensions to freedom to create a space in which all of us can express ourselves, you know, have a, a, a civil discourse, but also take responsibility for our behaviour. And that's what that's what Trump and, and people like um, Nigel Farage refusing to answer questions about his policies. That There seems to be an attempt by people to push back on the limits of uh, social change in the name of free speech. And then when they get attacked, they seem to mistake consequences for censorship. You use a lovely... So what I don't want to do is just quote the book wholesale. No, I think no. people should read the book. But um, there's a lovely analogy in there which, which likens this to being on an aeroplane. Yeah, that's true. Well, basically, it, it's... I mean, because also part of what I'm trying to write about is how we deal with one another online. Because that's, that's you know, obviously it applies to Trump and it applies to Brexit, what I'm talking about. But it also applies to how we talk to each, each other online. And the, the problem about um, something like Twitter, for instance, is that makes you act 
in, as you would in private in a public place. You know, when you're, when you're at home in private, you can sit in your favourite armchair, kick your shoes off, put your arm on the rest, lay back, stretch out. You know, you're in your own space. But if you try and do that in an economy seat on an airliner, you're going to get trouble. Because in that context, you're, you're in a public place and therefore you have to interact with other people and respect other people. And the visual cues you get from that, from looking at the people around you and, and their behavior, we're all totally attuned to that. That's how you'll behave. It might be the person sitting next to you wants to talk and is, don't mind moving a little bit. You know, you might see someone across the, the, the aisle who's asleep next to somebody, but chances are they're either related or have a very Bond, deep bond of trust you can't expect to just come in and act exactly how you want to and that's the problem with with social media you're in a private place personally where you're sitting writing but you're in a public forum and these these problems of of how i can say whatever i want to say the idea of liberty freedom of speech does it does have limits you know it, it clearly does have limits and they work on a number of different levels a guy was uh, sent to prison for daubing uh, no blacks here on the door of a, a a black family in I think Manchester. That clearly you can't defend that on terms of freedom of speech. He's rightly been convicted on that. And then all the way back to Twitter, you can say stuff on Twitter and get banned, and that's consequence. You've got to accept that consequence. You're not. It's not like you're in Russia being put in prison. That's that's losing freedom of speech. That's censorship. But you know, getting turfed off Twitter just because you you're constantly making racist, sexist, homophobic comments. That's consequences. You uh, you get into the, the the rise of political correctness as something to be angry about yeah. by a certain type of person. I was wondering um, because it used to be a brigade. It was the, the, when PC we first heard of it, you're part of the PC brigade. Yeah, like when when did you first hear this bandied about, and was it something people would say say about it's you? A, it's a nineties and a kind of nineteen nineties phenomena, and it's a, a soft way of trying to limit uh, social change. You know. Um, there really is no such thing as political correctness. It doesn't actually exist. There's no, um, there's no political party promising more political correctness. There's no, um, intellectuals out there writing the theories of political correctness. No one marches on the streets demanding political correctness. It's completely the construct of uh, reactionaries and in some ways is a manifestation of their lack of power that things are changing that they don't like, so they try to marginalise those people. And it goes all the way from, uh, you know, out and out, really, what is out and out bigotry in some terms, all the way to uh, Piers Morgan complaining about vegan pasties. Why would, he, why would he be so threatened by a vegan pasty, which turns out to be very popular? Gregs are making more and more of them. People really like them. What is that? How does that, how does that yeah, threaten you, you Piers You know Morgan? that he has just been to the States, seen that gets viewers over there, and he's come back and he thought, oh, well, we'll, we'll, we'll try that in this country then. I mean, there's no sincerity. There's no conviction in what he's saying. He's just trying to stir people up. But why, why does it stir people up? Why is it resonating with so many people, do you think? My sense of it is that... Um, it resonates with people who feel they have very little agency over their lives and feel that their lives are con controlled by someone somewhere else. If you, as someone like Piers Morgan or Donald Trump or Nigel Farage, can complain about an abstract idea, let's take the vegan pasties as an example, and people can get angry about it, I don't want vegan pasties, it makes them feel like they have some form of agency and also at the same time prevents them from actually attacking the reason why they don't have no agency, which is because of the, the corporate control of democracy. That's where the problem really lies. It's a deflection technique.
How how different? I was thinking. I mean, you will have both had this. Ed, you will have had it presumably as as an MP over the years, and and Billy, I'm sure, in the eighties, Reg Wed, uh, Red Wedge days. Good old Reg, Reg. Yeah, yeah I remember doing? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, well. How uh, would you would you get sort of angry letters, green ink letters, and and how different is that? How different is that than something like Twitter? Is it just the effort that people have to put in? It's different in that you don't get thirty of them in two minutes, right? Mm. I mean, if you've ever because been, it's if you've easy ever, for people to tweet. If you've yeah. ever been the, the the focus of a Twitter pylon, I, I tweeted something this morning, uh, and I see it's got 96 replies. I'm not even going to read them because <laughs> I know what they're all going to be like. I'm just going to move on, you know, forget it. I haven't got time to spend all day trying to correct, you know, correct people about details that they're totally misrepresenting. So I'm like, you know what? Pew. I'm, just, I'm wondering about the underlying anger. If it's just people have got a channel for it now, or I mean, you were on MySpace yeah, ten, yeah. fifteen years ago. Like, how how nutty was MySpace? That wasn't nutty. To this, yeah. I mean, I think the real example is the popularity of uh, the idea that the Earth is flat, which has suddenly got a whole new uh, lease of life. Yeah, because the internet is able to connect people who believe that before. Those people were disparate, and they were. Do you not know this happens? Oh yeah, oh, yeah. There's a huge movement, and yeah, yeah, seemingly yeah. rational people are now watching YouTube. You can go on a videos. cruise. You can go on a cruise with like 1,300 people. What to talk about the Earth being flat? And the interesting yeah. thing is, this is one of the things I find really interesting is they all have different theories about why the Earth is flat, but none of them have a theory that explains why, if it is flat, it's being kept from us. What's the reason why? We're, we're but not isn't that told. the interesting thing that people think something is being kept from them? It's that thing yeah. again about agency in their lives, right? Yeah, I think uh, going on top of the pops is being kept from me, but you know, <laughs> and I know lots of other people who think that as well. But we ain't going to get together and get top of the pops back again, are we? It's unfortunately the the uh, scope for uh, rational discussion has, has started to slip away, and and that's why free speech alone is is no longer sufficient to protect uh, our liberty it really is um and it's absolutely fundamental it's absolutely fundamental free speech the right to express your opinion has to be the foundation of freedom because it empowers us but you have to when you express your view of free speech you have to respect the right of everybody else that's how freedom works it's reciprocal Equality is a reciprocal right. So they respect you and you respect them. And then you introduce the, the, the third dimension, which is accountability. And what's interesting about that is it is both empowering because it allows you to hold others to account, but it's also reciprocal because you have to make yourself accountable too. You have to accept that some people are going to agree with you. Some people are going to say you're wrong. And you're sometimes going to have to say, you know what, I'm wrong. Okay, I accept that. There's not enough of that either in our mainstream politics or in our national discourse or in our online uh, uh, operations as well. How easy is it to admit you're wrong as a a politician? Mm, Not very easy. I would say, don't you think? Well, I do, but I think that's the culture in that, you know, the newspapers will call you a flip-flopper or somebody with no conviction. But do you not think people understand it? Yeah, I, I think you're right. Um, but breaking the culture of it's the difficult thing, I guess. Because a frontline politician, it feels very hard. Yeah, if you're, you know, lead, I, if you're leader of the Labour Party, talking to him before he was leader of the Labour Party and after it was two different things. So I came to see you a couple of times to know what you're leader. 
There's a lot of staring out the window when he was the leader because he was thinking about, mm, no, so I got all covered. When it was just me and him talking about ideas, he was like, oh, this is a really interesting idea. I could see how this might work. But when I was talking to him when he was leader, I, no disrespect, I just got the feeling he was thinking like, yeah, but how am I going to get this past the bloke who just brought me in the room and the bloke who's got a pass on the way out? It's, but it's the same. I, well, it's the yeah. same when I saw Tony Blair. It's the same when I see Jeremy Corbyn. It's not uncommon, and I'm aware of that. Yeah. I'm, I'm coming in at an angle to the debate that's going on. I'm not expecting to be carried out on the shoulders like I've come in, you know, I'm just trying to, you know, put some ideas and float them out there. And I, I respect people that do the job that Ed does, even as a backbencher. I don't think I would do it because the pressure that they're under, because the effect it has on their on their daily life and because of the responsibility that goes with it. I'm really interested, Billy, that you use the word accountability and not democracy. Democracy, Ed, is not sufficient. You know, how do you, how do you explain? We live in a democracy, don't we? What about the House of Lords? Where's the democracy in that? What happened to my vote in, in, in West Dorset, where the Tories have been in power since 1886, and I'm voting for Labour or Liberal Democrats sometimes, tactically, where does that vote go? It don't go to Westminster, it goes in the bin. But or those people in Barking, where I come from, where Labour have always been in power, those Tories and Liberal Dems there, their vote goes in the bin. What's democratic in that? What's your distinction, do you think, between account? if you had to describe <clears throat> the distinction between accountability and democracy? Democracy is the opportunity to elect a government. Yeah. Accountability is the the ability to hold those who have power over you uh, to account. And that's not just politicians, that's also um, corporations as well and and other and other people who have an effect on your life. You know, it's not just the 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 democracy in some ways is a you know, you know the famous Winston Churchill quote, it's the worst type of yeah. Worst type of way of electing a government, apart from all the other types that have been tried. And, you know, there is, it has its limitations. Accountability is a concept rather than a, a, a mechanism. Democracy is a me- mechanism. Accountability is a concept. I mean, it's very interesting because in the start of the book, the two um, quotes that you have you are Donald Trump saying, when you're a star, they let you do it, you can do anything. And then the Tony Benn quote some people will be familiar with but i think it's incredibly powerful which is as follows if one if one meets a powerful person ask them five questions what power have you got i won't try and do the voice where did you get it from <laughs> in whose interest do you exercise it to me you accountable and how can we get rid of you i mean when i heard him say that at glastonbury and i heard him say it a few times but when i heard him say it at glastonbury i thought you know this that's exactly what i'm talking about that's what this book is about really it's all about those things. Where did you get your power? Who are you? It's not just a politician. It's a powerful person. I would argue that it's the lack of agency that has led us to Brexit, that's leading us to authoritarianism across Europe, has led to Donald Trump. People no longer feel that they have the ability to control their their, their lives to uh, to the extent that they're not pushed and pulled by the winds of change all the time. I mean, so Change is speed, speeding up, but people want to feel that they have some say in the way it goes. So take back control, in a way, is the popular version yeah. of yeah. what you're exactly. talking about exactly. when you talk about but let's not stop. But let's not stop with the European Union. Let's yeah. take back control of Westminster. Let's have devolution for England. Let's have regional assemblies in, 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 in England as well, so that people who live in England have the opportunity to uh, vote in an election where almost all of their votes will count. You know, we're corporate all, accountability you <clears throat> talk about also. As well, book, as you? well, yeah. I mean, and, and that's, started to, that's a lot more, obviously that's a lot more difficult because you can't really do it on a national level. You need to belong to a multinational group like the European Union, so we're in danger of losing that. But it is starting to come into focus when people are uh, thinking about how we deal with Facebook, with Google, with uh, Huawei. You know, these are all issues of accountability. So although um, 
it's not easy to think how we could do this and how you how do you hold capitalism to account rather than abolish it. You know, there was a time when people thought it was impossible to hold kings to account. You know, the, the history of England, there's a before and after they chop off King Charles I's head. You know, that's the fulcrum of our history. Before, you know, everybody just made policy through a mixture of kind of tradition and theocracy. After Charles has gone up on the scaffold in January 1649, deliberation takes root. Democracy takes root very slowly, but first, eventually, we're starting to have that kind of democracy. And we need to be at a moment like that with capitalism, where the idea of it just running wild, the, the new robber baron idea, is changed to a, to a system whereby people have a say and, and uh, corporations have a responsibility. I think I say in the book that capitalism is like fire. If you tend it, it will give you heat and light. But if you leave it to its own devices, it will destroy everything in its path. Have you given any thought to what it would look like? You, you talk a lot about the post-war consensus um, and, and the sort of levers and control that the nation state had at that stage. Um, and you use that quote about Tony Blair saying uh, globalisation being an, an inevitability and you might as well, you know, ask um, is it inevitability that winter yeah. follows autumn. But have you thought about i mean we we are living in a more connected world you mentioned stuff like facebook and 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 twitter what if it's not the na- if it's not the levers of a nation state what what does it look like is it a version of the european union is it a super revamped united nations with teeth i mean yeah, it has to be a, it has to be some sort of, it seems to me it has to be some sort of version of the european union um it has to be some sort of jurisdiction which uh, can deal with ensuring that taxes uh, are paid in the uh, jurisdiction in which they're raised. You know, that kind of uh, extractive model of capitalism that is so common now under globalisation. In fact, you could argue it's the point of globalisation. Uh, cheap food and, and no taxes for the for the corporations. You know, the, this this idea is, is, is not a radical outlier idea. It's a lot, a lot of people are talking about how to do this. So um, it, it doesn't really take a, a, a complete change the system to change the direction in which the system goes you know the 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 people who believe in free market capitalism are are trying to dodge responsibility the the market will make all the decisions you know and if if british steel goes down it's the market you know we, there's nothing we can do about it you know are we going to raise uh, a, a child allowance we'll have to see what the bond markets say. i heard a tory politician say that once in a tv studio you know so the 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 question then is: Is this just? A, is it just a force of nature, or are the problems that we have systemic? That we've made decisions. People have made decisions. You know, I think the the progressive says that the problems are systemic, and that we can make better decisions that give uh, the majority of people a greater uh, benefits from the the way that capitalism works. Um, and because we live in a post ideological world where the language that, you know, we were using in the 1980s, the language that Ed's dad used, no longer connects with people in any way. This doesn't mean the problems that Marx was talking about have been resolved. We've got to find a new language to talk about these. And in order to do that, we've got to find a bottom line. We've got to say, well, how, you know, how do we build this new, if it's going to be an ideology, what is it built on? I would argue it has to be built on liberty, equality and accountability. So what else does equality look like then? Well, equality looks like um, me too. It looks like Black Lives Matter. 
That's what it looks like. So it feel, feels like the, the, the arc of history is bending in that direction. You want to hope that. You have to believe that. If you're going to be a socialist or a progressive, you have to, you have to recognise the glass is half full. I don't see how you can be otherwise, you know. If you think everyone's out to get you, I don't see how you can be on the left. Obviously, you know, we're prone to cynicism, cynicism as anybody else, but we have to be able to kick it to the curb and make a, make a, a, <clears throat> a, a genuine uh, punt to connect with humanity. That's what our politics is all about. So it's nice to imagine that, but sometimes you have to get up on the end of the, enough of you have to get on the end of the arc of history and bend it yourself rather than waiting for it. It's not a rainbow. Don't you think also we're in a sort of pregnant moment, and and it, you know we we could end up with authoritarianism, Trump turbocharged Trump, you know Trumps across the world, or we could end up with something better. I mean, in other words, there's there's this, you know there's deep discontent as revealed by the Brexit vote by Trump mm. getting elected, etc., yeah. etc. But there is a chance to shape it in a way yeah. that politics is more dangerous than it would have been. When we've it's more fluid. It's more years, fluid, but it's also more fluid, much and more, more fluid. Opportunity, yeah. potentially mm. more opportunity. Yeah, I mean, I think Brexit will destroy everything it touches, and I should imagine the Conservative Party will be top of that list, but Labour could be on that list as well. You know, it could. Everything is shifting in the in the twentieth uh, century. Ideology gave us a framework in which to have a discussion, Definitely. and in the sense that when we talked about socialism, we kind of all knew what we were talking about. We we understood that. Take the ideology away, things are slipping all over the place. You know, it's like classic right-wingers are now, you know, man of the people fighting the elites kind of stuff. What I would like to, to think that we could do by focusing on these three ideas is create a new framework which we can bring to bear on people like Farage or we can bring to bear on what the Labour Party is doing and see if this fits within the parameters of the sort of society that we want to live in. At the moment, there's no attempt being made to to make that kind of space. And it's a, that's why it's called the three dimensions, because it's a space for a discourse that all of us can take part in about what kind of society we want to live in. That is not ideological. This isn't a left or right wing argument. This is an argument about being able to sit down and, and discuss these things rather than screaming and shouting at each other all the time and, and you know, debate being nothing more than point scoring and, and macho knob measuring. Can I say knob measuring? Yeah, yeah you're fine. Definitely. You can say cock measuring if you want. Oh, well, I don't think I, I don't want to lower the tone. No, exactly. Jeff, trust Jeff. <laughs> yeah, that's what that. I'm here yeah, to yeah. do. Yeah. Um, on, on accountability, uh, something I found interesting was the idea of the, the removal of shame mm. as, as, as a tool to hold the powerful to account. Yeah. What's gone on there? Well, I think that's something that has, has fallen in. I mean, a lot of this is amplified by Trump, obviously. The arrival of Donald Trump casts a shadow right across the landscape of of uh, our politics and our, <clears throat> and our discourse. So... When before, you could put facts in front of someone and they would, you know, feel duty bound to fess up. Now it's much more likely they're going to double down and going to try and push through that. Carl Benjamin, with his threat of rape against a female Labour MP, doesn't say, oh, you know what, fair enough, that's a bit over the top, which, which is what you'd expect a candidate for the European Parliament might say, might show a little bit of shame. No, he doubles down. He comes up with another way of saying it. And that... That's a very much a kind of like an online mentality that you don't respond by saying, okay, fair dues. You know, you, you come back bullish. And, and I think that, 
that idea to sort of like push against any challenge to your point of view is is partly an attempt to avoid any shame whatsoever. What about this as a sort of thesis that basically what what Trump has sort of taught people is you should show strength even at the expense of lying. In other words, the th- you know the, the thing that always struck me during the primaries was he would never, you know, he'd say John McCain was not really a war hero and everybody would, say, everybody would gasp and say, well, that's it, he's had it. And then he'd double down on it. You know, he'd attack a uh, gold star family, you know, somebody who, parents who lost their uh, son, you know, in a war, everybody would gasp, say that was it, and he'd double down on it. And so in a way, and, and that is speaking to something which is people feel the, the world cut their own countries in a terrible mess and they think in the absence of a sort of ideological alternative a, a, a convincing left ideological alternative they think strength they sort of think the strong man is the way out of it yeah well that's always a danger hasn't it that's always been a danger in in terms of of uh, our politics um people saw thatcher as a strong leader and blair in some ways as a strong leader i mean let's don't Forget, Blair kind of did up his double-breasted suit and took us into Iraq as a strong man, you know, pushed it through Parliament. So that was quite unpopular, though, wasn't it? It was, and Trump is quite unpopular, and Thatcher was quite unpopular. I mean, Trump is not as unpopular as he we would think he should be. Well, I'm not sure. I think he's the, the damage he's done to the reputation of the United States of America will, you know, will live with for a long time. But ultimately, we, we, there's a battle going on between facts and feelings. You know, what's, in the end, we've, we've, we've got to make a case for veracity, for honesty, for accountability. We've got to make that the, the bottom line. But then for, facts have been undermined, haven't they, by you know, people being dismissive of experts. That's true, but we've got... And, and you know, this, going back to the flat earth thing, people yeah. would rather think something is being kept from them and there's a big conspiracy. But when it's the flat earthers on their boat travelling, I have to say it, around the globe <laughs> <coughs> uh, with three GPS satellites that are working out where they are. Then it's not even go into it. That's harmless. That's yeah, harmless, yeah, you yeah. know. But when you've got someone like Carl Benjamin saying what he's saying and, and normalising rape, that is really, really dangerous. So time comes where we have to make a stand, and I'm saying this is where we make the stand. The last thing on accountability I wanted to ask you about was human rights. Now, um, human rights are a, a way of holding the governments and structures accountable, and it's become a dirty word amongst the or a dirty phrase amongst the people who it seems who to want pre- to yeah. avoid accountability. I mean, that's, I'm sorry, I keep coming back to this A word, but <clears throat> you know, the whole thing about human rights is that they they belong to the individual. They empower the individual against the state. So the you know, so the Tories hate them. They hate the idea that they're going to be held to account. Look at Penny Morden talking about getting an amnesty for any soldiers who committed a crime whilst on active duty. That's a war crime they're talking about. That that you know, we've got to, we've got to hold a line somewhere um, on that as well. So human rights are the ultimate guarantor of accountability, of some form of accountability. And we live in a country without a written constitution. So our um, Membership of the European Convention on Human Rights, which currently guarantees our rights to free speech, so we're exercising sitting here, is absolutely really crucial because under our constitution, any government can change the nature of the constitution with a simple majority in parliament. One of the reasons we're in this current 
um, stalemate they were in is because the Tories changed the constitutional length of a parliament and how parliament would uh, a prime minister would fall in order to to keep the the coalition together with the Liberal Democrats and the fact that they could just do that in parliament on a Tuesday afternoon with a show of hands shows you how fragile our human rights are. So not only do we need devolution and elected upper house, but we also need a written constitution. Well, you know whose fault it is we haven't got one? It's not Ed, is it? It is Ed. Gordon Brown sent him an email on Christmas Day 2004 <laughs> suggesting a written constitution. That is true, and which I never found knew. on my old Blackberry. Yeah. See, if you'd managed, taken some Ed, time out mate. on Christmas Day... Hey, listen, tell, Gordon, there I was tell eating, Gordon to email me there next I, time. There I was eating the turkey. <laughs> yeah, and we wouldn't be yeah, in this. Mind you, only Gordon would do that on Christmas Day, <laughs> yeah, wouldn't he? Have a, have a break, mate. <laughs> Jesus <laughs> Christ. Uh, Billy, the, the, I mean... You know, there's there's a lot to feel downbeat about, or even though the 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 book gives us this framework, we're a long long way off it. I, th- I wondered if we could finish um, with a bit of optimism. Can can you give us a reason yeah, to be cheerful? I can give you a reason to be cheerful. Okay. I can indeed. Okay. Rather than bemoaning the fact that the tide of veracity is flowing in the wrong direction and the, the hordes of liars and reprobates are coming towards us, I'm building a kind of uh, should we say a, a big a grass bank of uh, of accountability and equality to deal with them. And I'm handing out spears. It's time, you know, it's time to, to, to join. We can't sit around anymore thinking, oh, what are we going to do? What we're going to do is we're going to draw a line in the sand on accountability and we're going to do our damnedest to hold those bastards to account. Well, get your spears from a good bookshop near you or get your books from a good spear shop near you. Either way. <laughs> uh, the book is The Three Dimensions of Freedom. Billy Bragg, thank you so much. Thank you. Cheerful Book Club is produced by Emma Corsham and Joel Pierce for Cheerful Productions in association with Goldfish London. Support for Cheerful Book Club comes from Vintage. Read boldly, think differently. Follow at Vintage Books for more. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.